Hello and welcome back to another video on this channel. In this video, we're going to be starting our discussion in the biblical series about the text itself. In the past, we've looked at thematic discussions. We've looked at the context of Genesis 1. However, today we're going to be actually talking about the text themselves of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to give you what you can learn or what we can learn from these texts. I'll be just talking about what are the main themes you can find in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We're going to go through these themes and like normal, you can skip to wherever you want in this video because I'll have timestamps in the description below of what themes you want to look at. Now the themes I'll be talking about are including order and chaos, nature of God, nature of man, existentialism, and much more. So if you want to skip to any particular section in this video, then feel free to do so. Of course, if you want to watch the entire video, then you will have a more in-depth understanding of the entire topic in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So of course, right before we get into the discussion, I want to make it clear that I'm quoting from the New American Standard Bible. It's a Bible that one of my old Sunday school teachers gave me, and I think it is a very good Bible. Of course, there are other translations as well, and whatever translation you're using, that's good for you. But here is just the translation that I'm using and I'm reading for, and I don't think the translation really changes what we can learn from it. So let us start off with the first point that I want to make, and this is the idea of the setting, the, the situation that we're set in, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And we can read this from Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. So what do we immediately see from these first few chapters? I think we, I mean for the first few verses, I think the first thing we see is that God is within the chaos. We have this idea or this dichotomy that we see in reality between order and chaos. Order and chaos represent a lot of things. Order could represent actualized potential, whereas chaos could represent raw potential. It could represent structure against the lack of structure. And a lot of these concepts, this could be presented. Here, I think, especially in the Genesis story, we're talking about potential and, and order, or the actualization of potential, the fulfillment of order, or the fulfillment of purpose within the potential of the space, or the potential of universe. You, you start off with nothing, that nothingness is the chaos, it is the potential. And from that, that boundless potential, you get the product, you get the creatio ex nihilo of God. And, and this is what we're seeing. God first goes into the chaos, goes into the potential, and draws out from the, the chaos, and draws out from this nothingness, draws out light, draws out water, draws out all things. And, and this is a very interesting kind of concept that we're discussing from. It's the idea that in order for us to go forward, in order for us to create, in order for us to actualize and fulfill our potential, we first have to confront and go into the chaos. It's not like some easy idea of us saying, well, let's just stay in the order all our time, just stay in our structure, stay in our comfort zone. That's not enough. We must first embrace the chaos, step into that lack of structure, and from that structure, bring forth our potential, bring out the best within us. And by doing so, we can become better, just as the world is moving towards from this lack of, not this absence of anything, this nothingness, this chaos, to fulfill potential. And that's something very interesting in the first few verses of the Bible. Now, the second point that I want to talk about is the goodness of creation. And I hope that I'm not rushing through these points too much. And if you, of course, if you want me to elucidate anything, then let me know in the comments below. I'll happily discuss them with you or join my Discord server where you can reach out to me to talk more about it. So where do we get this idea of the goodness of creation? Well, I think we get it from this idea of the use of good a lot. Here we say, God saw that the light was good. And then later it says, 
Well, God called the dry land earth and the earth and the gathering of the waters he called sea. And God saw that it was good, verse 10. And then you continue reading into verse 11 and it says, and verse 12, which says, the earth brought, brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. Once again, we constantly see this idea of good, this motif of good repeating throughout the narrative. And I think this is very interesting because a lot of times when we're discussing Christianity or philosophy of religion, we always have this very big problem of suffering. We're like, well, why did God create a bad or this evil world? Well, it wasn't at the beginning created as evil. Here we can see that there's goodness throughout it. Throughout the Genesis account, we keep on seeing the idea of God said that it was good. God saw that it was good. These are very important ideas that the creation itself was good in the beginning. And perhaps, and perhaps in some ways, it still is good. And of course, people might say, well, there's so much evil, there's so much suffering. But at the same time, there's this idea, this contra suffering, this idea against this suffering that maybe the creation, maybe the suffering is part of this good creation that God created in the beginning. Yes, it's not good in the same way that it was in the sense that there is no evil. But I don't think that's the only understanding of good. Rather, I think that there are other understandings of good, like, for example, the good, the good is that which fulfills its telos. Good is that which fulfills its purpose, its potential. And perhaps humans can only fulfill their potential when there is evil and suffering in this world. And of course, you could say this is quite similar to the soul-building theodicy, and there's a lot of critiques towards the soul-building theodicy that you might discuss here. But I think that there's something which goes further, there's something which is deeper in the idea that well, humans without evil, humans without the potential to, e to do evil, would not be good in the first place. For example, if you look at uh, these like great heroes like Leonidas, like Hercules, like Archelaus, these, these people are only heroes because they have the potential to do great evil. If someone only did good and had no ability to do evil, their action of doing good would be nowhere as deep, nowhere as profound as a person who did good and controlled the evil impulses, the, the potential to do evil within him. And perhaps in the same way, the earth requires that evil so that we can interact with it and we can use it to overcome ourselves and become greater. And furthermore, there's this idea suggesting that, well, the negation of God is the denial of the severity of suffering and evil. And hence, everything is good in the sense that there is nothing bad. And that's another understanding, which is very important, something that Dostoevsky talks about with Kirillov, Kirillov in, in, um, in Demons, The Possessed by Dostoevsky, says, well, everything is good. I pray to everything. And, and what is Kirillov trying to say here? He's saying, well, let's look at the world around us, assuming that God does not exist. Let's assume that Christ is not true and that there is no divine transcendence purpose. Well, well, where is our concept of evil? Where is our concept of bad? And of course, the same thing goes on. Well, where is our concept of good? Yes, maybe if there's no bad, there's no good. But if we go back to our beginning, good being the absence of evil, then, well, there is no evil because we don't have any transcendent meaning to the evil that we experience. What happens is that there are just random chemical impulses going on in our brain. It's just random molecules interacting with each other. There is no evil. There is no suffering. There is no bad negative connotations to these emotions, to these feelings, apart from a materialistic understanding which makes our understanding of evil completely devoid of any existential importance. And with that in mind, it's just very clear that if God does not exist, then, well, there is no evil, and hence everything is good, and good defined in the sense that there is no evil, and not the good in the other ways we've defined it here. 
But that's just something very, very interesting to suggest. In order to view the world as evil, or for us to view the world as bad, we first must affirm God. But if we look at this God hypothesis and we look at the telos of the world, is it not surprising to view that the world is actually good and that creation isn't, and even creation in its fallen state right now, isn't completely bad and that there is good in this suffering? I think that's a very existentialist dialectic here, which is very interesting. And, and it's something that we see in the beginning of this text. It's like the creation was good. And perhaps even now, despite the suffering, it is still very good in some degree. And now we say, well, the nature of God. And I think that is the next theme that we want to talk about. What does Genesis tell us about the nature of God? Now, I don't think Genesis tells us all about the nature of God, but I think there's three main things we can talk about. First of all, that God is orderly. The writer of these texts felt that there was something orderly to the universe that we see. On the first day, certain things were created. On the second day, certain things were created. God is acting in an orderly state here, as we can see in the text. And it's not just some random process that completely has no existential or further meaning to it. There is a certain order and a certain purpose to the universe as it is created. And there's a drive and a movement towards a certain direction. Because when we say there's order, there's also a purpose, there's also a direction. And God is trying to use this first these texts to point us towards that direction. We're created, and perhaps an existentialist verb, we're thrown into this world and we have to move towards a direction. That's very important. And God is good, and God is good by the standard. God saying this is good means that it is good. When God says, God saw that it was good, like I said before in the creation, he is justifying what is good and what is not. He's saying, well, that is good, that is good. Well, that might not be good, but that over there is good as well. And by doing that, he is creating the standard. And there's this idea that God has the ability to create the standard for our lives. And hence, we should follow him. And that's also learned in the Bible. And finally, we say God created us imago Dei. We are created in the image of God. And this is found in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. Here we say God, we are created in God's image. We are meant to be his image bearers. We can find part of God within us, and by looking at ourselves, by reflecting about ourselves, we can learn more about God. And that is something very interesting, I think, in the Genesis story. Now, let us turn to humans, because I think we've talked about the nature of God, and now it's only right for us to turn to what does this tell us about humans. Now, what does it tell us about humans? I think it tells us that we have a telos. As I've said before, here we say in Genesis 1:26, it says, Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What we see here, I think, is just very, very important. It's very, very interesting. It's saying, well, God is indeed creating something and God has given us a purpose. We're working towards a certain idea. And of course here we can see that this purpose is very limited and it's nowhere as complex as the universe that we are living in right now. But it does set off this idea that we are indeed created with a purpose and that purpose is given divinely by God and that there's a point of the transcendence within us. Now that we've discussed the nature of man, let's discuss the next point, the next theme in the Bible, which I think is the beauty in creation. I think there's something very beautiful in the action of creation and we can view this from Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 to 5 which says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, 
and there was no man to cultivate the ground. What we see here is that we have this very dry image of creation. There is this world, there is this situation, there's this problem, there's this thing that we've been put upon, but at the same time, there's nothing beautiful to it. It's a very dry, it's a very bleak, barren wasteland. And then in six and seven, we see, but a mist used to rise from the earth and the water, the, the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And that's a very interesting idea. It's this idea that out of this barren wasteland, water came up and, and you might say there's this mist. And what does this mist mean? It's like, think of the most arid desert ever. You look at this arid kind of situation where the ground is cracked in the middle of this desert and, and you say, well, this thing, it just looks absolutely pointless. It's meaningless. Then you put water on it. You put you put um, rivers through it, you put oceans on it, and then what do you see? This, this ground is no longer useless, this ground is no longer barren. You see boundless potential in this beautiful, lush garden coming out from it. There's beauty in that creation, there's beauty in the revival out of the barren wasteland, there's a beauty out of that barren desert, and you could say, of course, once again, you have this chaos to order, kind of dialectic, this kind of archetype you see here, but you also see that there is something beautiful in the act of creation, I think that this is something very important in all of us. And I think that is one of the drive that God gave humans when he said we would make humans in our image. It's like we ourselves find something beautiful in the act of creation. When you're down, write a poem. When you're down, listen to music. When you're down, when you're feeling sad, when you're feeling depressed and alone, look outwards, look outwards to the things around you. And that is very, very beautiful. And, and create something, really try to make something new. And it might not be new in the sense that you've made this thing out of nothing. It's not necessarily need to be a creatio ex nihilo. Of course, you're gonna have your influences, your inspirations, but create something, make something. And that act of creation is beautiful and it can really help your psyche, your philosophy, your psychology. And that helped me before when I was down, I create something, I write a poem or something like that. That means a lot to me. Try yourself to make something. And you can also see this, this this dynamic of when you're creating something, you're changing this barren wasteland of your heart, your sadness, and out of that, rising a mist from the ocean, rising a mist out of this darkness, and you're creating something and giving it life, changing that barren scorched earth into a garden. Now, finally, and these are the last few things I want to talk about, is that we're looking at currently an existentialist theory. And this is the idea that we have been thrown into the world. And we can read this from Genesis 7 to 8. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into him the nostrils of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. And there he placed the man wh whom he had formed. What we see here is this existentialist idea that we're thrown into the world. God has thrown us into this situation in the Garden of Eden. And of course, this doesn't have the negative existential kind of sadness to it, which Camus and Sartre discuss in their in their works. But here we have the idea that nevertheless, you're thrown into the garden and we are placed into this world. And the question that we're raised or the immediate question that we face is, well, how do we interact with this world? And this is the key existentialist idea that we find in creation in the Genesis story. If we look at Genesis 2, chapter 15 and 16, we say, well, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it, the throne is. And what's this, the first thing he tells him is, well, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any of the tree of the garden, you may eat it freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The first thing he tells man to respond to his throneness is to give him a purpose and a direction. He's saying, well, 
you are thrown into this world, what do you have to do? In the same way, we are thrown into this world, we need to look to God and figure out what we need to do. The entire Bible, as a result, if we're looking at the Bible, is indeed about how do we respond to this problem of thrones. In the beginning, we're introduced to that the idea that man is placed on this earth. How do we go on from there is the question that the Bible is meant to be answering and what we're meant to be learning from. And that's the key thing that we see here. Now, what we also see, I think, is this move from court, from chaos to order to transcendent morality. And what I mean by this is, well, we have this fulfillment of order towards the end. And how do we see this is because in the beginning, we have chaos, we have nothingness. We start off from Genesis 1 and it says, well, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. There was nothing. This is complete chaos and utter, and utter potential. But now you're moving forward to order. You have an earth in Genesis 2. You have Genesis is like, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. We have the earth now. We are moving towards order. And then we have order, we have humans, we have fulfilled order. We now have the idea that then God has man, God took the man, that means God has man, and that is a fulfilled order. We have the central character of our story. We have the central character of the throneness. We have the hero in this situation. We now have fulfilled order, and well, where do we move forward? It is to transcendent understanding of reality, to existential solution. And what is that? It is the divine command of God it is not that we are just material, we are just some fulfilled order of material in this world. We're not just some structural understanding which only is restricted to the laws of nature. We are much more beyond it. Not only are we like the ground which is scorched when you, when, when you get to a certain heat, all the water gets evaporated. That's not sufficient. We're not just this chapped, scorched earth. We're not just this water which flows by gravity and all those things, H2O, the molecules. We are so much more than that. And that's what... And th th that's what we're saying. We're moving from this chaos to order, to transcendent morals. God is giving us moral commandments, and that moral commandment is very important. We are moral agents with following a transcendent order. And this importance of the transcendence is seen here when he says, well, when God is giving us the commands in Genesis 17 and 18, God is giving us his command and hence is making us a transcendent agent. The end of the end of this chaos to order cycle is fulfilled and completed by the realization of the transcendent code that we are ought or we should be following. And that's the final thing that I want to discuss in this video. So with that in mind, I hope you've enjoyed this video. We've discussed a lot of key themes today from discussing the nature of God to the nature of humans to chaos and order to existentialism to the beauty and goodness of creation. I hope you've enjoyed this idea. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of the Bible. I know this might be quite fast, I might have gone through these themes quite quickly. So if you want to know more about them, then make sure to reach out to me. I'll happily interact with you there. Also, let me know your thoughts, feedback, and comments in the comments below. I'll happily learn more from you to make this series as helpful to you as possible. Finally, if you've enjoyed this content, it'll mean a lot to me if you liked and subscribed. We can really help grow this channel together and help develop this community here as well. Thank you for watching. Like always, stay safe. See you soon. God bless and goodbye, my friends. Thank you for watching and have a great one.